0: I'm Angus. And I'm Ray. And we're Kirby Kids. Kids. Excelsior!
1: Hey, Angus, what are we talking about today?
0: We are talking about the seminal work that many have said started the new era, or maybe just establishing this genre itself, the graphic novel. We're talking Watchmen.
1: Yes. I've been waiting for this one. Yeah,
0: this is some very, very deep, heavy stuff. Mind-blowing. We will not be able to give this justice, folks. I mean, we will just be scratching the surface, but we will give it our best shot.
1: I, the Watchmen could actually have its own podcast. Like
0: Yes. multiple episodes. There yeah. are college courses that <laughs> study Watchmen. In many ways,
1: this is, I think, still the pinnacle of graphic novels.
0: Uh, agree. Yeah. Uh, just amazing from not only the masterful writing of Alan Moore, but Dave Gibbons' just visceral, stirring artwork in this thing. Yeah,
1: but hey, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Do yes, you have we a, are. you have a Kirby colonel for us today? Yes,
0: I do. And let's go to that Kirby colonel. Hey, Wilford, fire up the tractor. Time to harvest another Kirby colonel. Our Kirby Colonel for today, the late 1970s, Jack Kirby left comics to go to work for animation studios such as Hanna-Barbera and Ruby Spears. He did designs for such shows as Thundar the Barbarian and Turbo Teen.
1: (laughs) Well, one of those is good. Yes. You know, I just recently learned about this. Thundar Bar- the Barbarian was a favorite of mine as a kid. Me too. And um, I, I knew about Ruby Spears and their collaboration on the three main characters. I did not know that Jack Kirby was on contract with Ruby Spears and that he developed a lot of the sets. And uh, just kind of the whole, basically the world of Thundar.
0: That's amazing. Yeah.
1: And and what's amazing about that too is I've always compared that with Kamandi. Mm. Commandy, I'm not sure how you say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the Commandy series, also by Jack Kirby, that has a very similar feel and yet is completely different. Very true. You're right. Yeah, you're right. Were you a Thundar fan?
0: Oh, huge Thundar fan. And of course, with both of us being gamers as kids, that just fed right into that particular love. Yeah. Uh, when you talk about that you know, post-apocalyptic world thing where fantasy meets science fiction, it was a cool mashup there. You, you had the princess. You had Ookla the Mock, who's kind of like this Wookie-ish furry kind of thing guy there. And yeah, yeah kind of half
1: ape, half cat. Yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> really, really funky. I loved his horse. Yeah. Oh <laughs> my gosh, what was that thing?
1: It <laughs> had that, kind of a snaky insect avoid kind of look to it. Oh yeah, it. So it, cool. it,
0: was, it was very, very cool. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, kudos to Jack. I mean, first he's, you know, there at Marvel, and then he hops over to DC, does New Gods, which of course we'll be covering in August. And then he goes into animation yeah. why not
1: well he was just a natural storyteller Um, speaking of which you, you mentioned new gods I think yeah. one of the places that you can really see Jack's influence in Thundar is the design of the sorcerers um, such as Gemini the the guy with two faces that wears the kind of modified spacesuit that he would that that sorcerer would easily fit into the new gods right they have yeah. a very similar look it's you, that Jack Kirby costuming
0: you named it you just nailed it yeah yes agreed. so agree. yeah
1: I, according to now there was actually I'm just going to cast off a reference to another podcast if you're interested there's a podcast out there called Thundar Road and it's all about Thundar the Barbarian and they tackle it in not in episode order but in the order as if uh, that would make sense if Thundar were traveling across the United States yeah they kind of mapped it but I think geographic
0: chronology yeah
1: (laughs) Um, so, but I, there were two episodes of that, uh, podcast that I specifically would recommend and they are interviews with Buzz, is it Buzz Dixon? I can't remember this. I
0: believe that is correct. It sounds right.
1: Yeah. Um, but, but one of the, um, idea guys or one of the creators at Ruby Spears and you get a lot of insight into how that show was created and some uh, personal notes about Jack in that interview as well.
0: Oh yeah, those side stories were fantastic. Wasn't it fun?
1: That was oh, a great yeah. lesson. Oh yeah,
0: particularly their big in the creative process in some of those rooms and how those conversations went. That was tremendous. Yeah. Next up, let's head over to some creative chatter where we'll focus in on Alan Moore, our writer, and Dave Gibbons, our artist illustrator. Whoever is this artist and this writer, I must meet you. Creative chatter. Alan Moore, our writer. Wow. Talk about a a titan when it comes to the graphic novel genre and just comics in general.
1: Yeah, good luck uh, doing a brief biography on this guy. Yeah,
0: that's going to be a bit challenging. But uh, (laughs) he was born in uh, Northampton, uh, spending most of his early life actually in a poverty-stricken region of that city. Attended school until he was expelled for dealing drugs in 1970. Moore embraced counterculture. Really made it his own as far as a creative muse. He was a practicing ceremonial magician and worships a snake deity, Lycan, also (laughs) a practitioner of uh, Kabbalah and Tara, and uh, he's an anarchist. In 1978, he began work on Maxwell the Magic Cat using a pseudonym there, Jill DeRay. He quickly established a cult following and from that, leveraged that experience over into a gig with the prominent magazine, 2000 AD. He was not able to work on Judge Dredd as he had hoped. And how he was actually recruited to work on that, but editor Alan Grant was sufficiently impressed with Moore's work and offered him uh, short stories in their Future Shocks uh, backup series.
1: Man, that's great! So many guys came out of that 2000 AD class.
0: It's astounding. We're gonna
1: have to do. Um, we're gonna have to do some of those comics in a, in a future. Oh, episode. I,
0: I agree with you. And for a past episode, I uh, took a look at that Future Shock uh, 2000 AD documentary. And if you want to talk about the British invasion that uh, happened in the 80s in the graphic novel uh, industry, that was basically the farm team that Karen Berger uh, pulled from. She yes. basically cherry-picked the best talent there, brought them over to that Vertigo imprint over at DC and the rest is history. That's, that's
1: a good way of looking at it. It's almost oh. – the, it's the parallel to uh, you know the Beatles and the British invasion in music, mm-hmm. right? It's, yes. It's a, definitely affected comics that oh. – that, uh, class of, of in creatives.
0: For sure. And you know Moore was at that tip of the spear, leading the charge. So he was most well-known for the Ballad of Halo Jones over in 2000 AD. He was not able to complete that work. And actually, in that 2000 AD Future Shop documentary, Neil Gaiman had the fortunate experience of having a lunch and long afternoon with Alan Moore and asked him how Halo Jones would have ended up.
1: You know, I love that Neil Gaiman has taken his, um, the freedom that he's got from being successful, and has become essentially like the Forrest Gump of, of uh, British creatives. Oh. Like he seems to be all over the place, and he and he talks to all these different. Like he, uh, his he's gone to his own childhood and looked at everything that inspired him, and then he's gone around and collected interviews with all these people, and he's like a touchstone now. He's, he, he appears everywhere.
0: He is to the graphic novel and you know the you know fictional fantasy mythos community. What let's say Dave Grohl currently is over to music. Yeah. It's someone that everyone knows. That's right. Because both of those gentlemen are fans within their own industries. So not only are they practitioners of their craft, right. but they're fans first and foremost. Six, six degrees. And they celebrate of, it.
1: Six degrees of Neil Bacon. Or, uh, of, of, of
0: Neil Gaiman. Yeah, Neil Gaiman. Yes, yeah. exactly. I said Neil Bacon. I was right. <laughs> Kevin Bacon, yeah. no, that'd be a mashup. <laughs> so yeah. uh, after. Uh, his success with Halo Jones, he was very quickly plucked away by Marvel UK and started working for them. Out of that, he then ended up coming over to DC, started working on the Swamp Thing comic, and was very excited with that opportunity.
1: Yes, mm-hmm. Swamp Thing. Oh. <laughs> We're reading that right now. Yes, it's we are. so good.
0: Oh, it is so good. Well, while over here, he hooked up with his old mate, Dave Gibbons, also from 2000 AD uh, fame. And that's when they started collaborating on the work that we will be reviewing today, being Watchmen. So, Moore uh, was offered his own imprint by Jim Lee and formed America's Best Comics under Wildstorm Productions. With America's Best in full production, Jim Lee brokered a deal to sell Wildstorm to DC. Moore nearly backed out. Uh, However... He continued and pressed on, and he went on to develop League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, Promethea, Tom Strong, and the rest, as they say, is history. He's also been instrumental in developing From Hell, V for Vendetta, Miracle Man. It's amazing. It's yeah, he has quite a resume. A- absolutely. Absolutely. Incredible resume.
1: So, what do we know about the artist?
0: Yeah, so Dave Gibbons, before working at on American Publications, he illustrated and lettered many classic British strips in the seventies and eighties, which include Harlem Heroes, ABC Warriors, Judge Dredd, Rojaws, Robo Tales, Rogue Trooper. From there, he worked for Marvel, Vertigo, and DC. Worked on Green Lantern Corps. Worked on tie-in series with the Infinite Crisis event that happened uh, over oh, on, yeah. in D.C. Mm-hmm. In uh, 2014, I found this quite interesting, he was appointed the U.K.'s first comics laureate. His appointment to that role for a two-year stint saw him championing children's literacy through schools and teacher training events and oh. education conferences.
1: But now, I knew they had a poet laureate. I didn't know they had a comics laureate. That's and really interesting.
0: That is our first comics laureate out of yeah. the U.K., Quite quite an honor for uh, Mr. Gibbons there.
1: I wonder if that now I know when Ted Hughes uh, became the poet laureate. I think that's when he wrote the. I keep wanting to say the Iron Giant. Is it? I think it's called the Iron Giant. I think and, you're yeah, right. right. The Iron Giant, yes. which was kind of a children's uh, literature, although it's great a great read as an adult. Oh, it is. Um, I wonder if if that's part of part of that honor is that you are to focus on you know young young people and literacy.
0: I would believe so based on how the original charter was written up by the British government. It's interesting. It is. It's very cool.
1: So what else has he done?
0: So he's also worked on Batman, Superman, as I mentioned Green Lantern before, and then Mm -hmm. over at Marvel, when Marvel uh, received the rights to do Doctor Who, uh, he also worked on the Doctor Who comic there for Marvel. Very cool. So
1: he's very prolific as well.
0: Oh, quite. Quite prolific. And uh, definitely a bit of a chameleon with respect to his artistic style. He's very adept at making sure that his art fits the writing right so from that aspect he was a perfect perfect artist to be working with that's an interesting point just in
1: general it's something we should keep an eye out for because there are that's a creative pattern that you see just like there are actors who are always basically always play the same character no matter what movie in thank you kevin costner right or mel gibson yes there are other actors who are chameleons who are very different depending on the role they're in very true and this is true of artists as well there are some artists that have this strong style and you're never going to change that style they just keep it in that style yeah um and there there are artists who are comedians who who change as as per, per the creative property they're working with, and uh, I I really admire that. I think that's a, a very cool. I mean, certainly there's no best way to do things, but it is interesting to, to note what kind of artists we're dealing with at any given time.
0: Very very true, and I have the utmost respect for any artist that is that adept and can turn on a dime, if you will, to meet uh, the objective of the overall project. Mm-hmm. That's that's quite a talent. So now, let's head on over to our exploration aisle, where we'll dive a little deeper into Watchmen. Our land ho! There's our literary aisle. So, Ray, what were your uh, initial impressions of uh, Watchmen? You know, That's kind of a loaded question, isn't I, it? I know, right.
1: <laughs> let's, let's get a couple things out of the way first. Sure. First of all... Are we going to have anything negative to say about this at
0: all? Mm, No, not really.
1: I have no complaints about this. I don't even have any little niggling, like, there's nothing. So let's just straight up say that we're going to fanboy on this one a little bit. Big time. And also along that line, when there's something that you really, really enjoy, love, care about, it's kind of hard to be analytical about it. Um, it almost feels irreverent to be analytical about <laughs> it, you know, so like argument um, for
0: the sake of argument, we'll right?
1: Do, we'll do our best to break down some stuff here, sure. but, um, you know, let's just, let's just face it. This is a great work and we just have lots of positive things to say about it. Yes. Yeah. So it's probably good to get that out of the way first. I'll tell you what. First impressions. I first read this. When did? When, what year did it come out?
0: uh It came out here, I believe. It was eighty six. Okay. Seven. Okay.
1: So I first read this probably around two thousand or the late nineties. I, I did not discover it when it first came out. Um, I had heard about it a number of times, but I was just not a comic reader at the time. You know, it's dense. Right? Quite. So, so my first impression was I really loved it, but there was so much going on that I felt a, it was a bit of a struggle the first time I read it. Yes. As good as it is. Because
0: it is so dense.
1: Yeah. And reading it the second time, I just enjoyed it so much. I almost wanted to start it over again the minute I was done.
0: You know, I would actually recommend for folks, and I rarely would do this, mm-hmm. that if you've never read Watch Me Before, watch the movie first. Okay. And here's the reason why. And I'd even say go for the director's cut, which, yes, folks, I know that's an awful long time to be sitting in front of a screen. Right. You may need a couple breaks here. But I found a vast, deeper appreciation for Watchmen Mm -hmm. after first watching the movie, and then the director's cut at that, and then going back for our read here this past November to then review this graphic novel. Right. Because literally, this graphic novel was Zack Snyder's storyboard
1: right let me uh, actually I've got a couple recommendations for newbies that's a great one I think watching the movie is a good way to access it there is an animated version of the comic Ah. which is also very cool they actually break down the visuals of the comic and you know make everything move a little bit it's a little bit if you ever watched uh, the children's show Reading Rainbow how they'll animate a kid's book it's a little (laughs) bit like that but it's very well done very well done and uh, that's a good way to start as well Uh, both you know the movie is very accurate to the comic the Uh, Moving comic is uh, almost 100% exact to the comic. There's a little bit of rearranging. There's a a few bits of dialogue that are dropped, but it's almost uh, purely the comic. The other thing I would say is if you're reading Watchmen for the first time, there are these inserts between the chapters that are like essays or they're supposed to look like really like memos or newspaper articles and, and things like that that give you more context and go a little deeper. I'd say skip those the first time. Yeah. Uh, because they are—that's part of what made it a struggle for me to read the very first time. That would slow me down a lot when I'd hit those. And they—and right. you—what we're looking at, folks, is a great story that has multiple levels to it. Yes. And each time you read it, you go a little deeper. You find more nuances. You find more bits. And it's okay for your first reading to be because even a superficial reading of this thing is still very complex and deep. For sure. <laughs> so don't be afraid to, to kind of take the the surface version first and then go for the annotated Watchmen or
0: whatever. And that's actually why I recommended viewing the movie first, mm-hmm. precisely for those reasons, because the fact that Snyder had to fit that movie, and he, even at the director's cut, it goes over three hours, into that time frame, he was forced to make certain editorial decisions to provide you with Those crests of the wave Mm -hmm. experience. So then when you do dive into the read of the graphic novel, you go, wow. Yeah. Look at this reference depth uh, depth that Ray, yes, you just referenced. Mm -hmm. All of these side yet complementary elements to each one of these chapters.
1: The other thing I would say is – Trust the trust the story on this one because yeah. there are things that come up that you think, what does this have to do with anything? Um, I'll give you an example. The there's a a newsstand, <laughs> um, at Crossroads in New York, and there's a lot of things going on around this newsstand. And there's a kid who or a, a, a guy who's reading comics at the newsstand, and you and then you'll dive into these pirate comics. Yes. And you think, what does this have to do with anything? Just trust it. It all comes together. It all makes sense. It's all related. It's all parallel. It isn't, uh, you know, it's not disjointed in any way. It's a very complex, very layered, very uh, cross-referencing sort of story. And the more, like I said, the more you read it... the the better you get. I was flipping through it uh, just before we got on the air here, and I saw something in the background of a panel that I'd never seen before. Right, just another little touch, and I'm like, oh my gosh! All these little subtle references. So it, there, good.
0: there are. There's some tremendous subtle references here. And what I also found fascinating, and I've been fortunate enough to have uh, friends across the pond, well over in the UK, is that you you actually can detect some U- UK nuances mm-hmm. in this. American setting that mm-hmm. is Watchmen, right? Which which is you know I I, I there was a smile uh, often when I when I would catch some of those and go yeah okay Alan Moore I I see where you're coming from <laughs> that's I, pretty cool yeah it's very, hey, very cool so
1: one interesting thing about this comic is it has a pretty broad array of characters for sure you want to talk about the main characters yes a little let's bit? do that
0: and the main vehicle for kicking off of Watchmen is the comedian the comedian right. himself. And that is the that iconic smiling button with the little drips of blood that everyone right. sees. That has really become iconic with respect to uh, identifying Watchmen.
1: Oh, and watch out for echoes of that graphic. <sighs> so, so the 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 button, the smiling face with the blood drip, is yes. echoed in clocks. It's echoed in. Um, reflections on window panes. It's echoed throughout the graphic novel in very subtle ways, and uh, that's yeah, it becomes like you said, iconic. It's part of this.
0: Oh yeah, and I mean, you thought you know Disney was clever with how many Mickey Mouse yeah. ears they can throw into things. Well, guess what? Dave Gibbons and Alan Moore have some. Uh, yeah, that's that's some a perfect analogy.
1: They're the hidden Mickey's of the story. Yes. So um, the comedian? Yes, the the comedian is,
0: yes, your gumshoe in all of this and and, and leading you through the story is Rorschach.
1: Rorschach, of course. And
0: that is an amazing and complex character. Mm -hmm. If anything, if a disciple of Ayn Rand was afoot, in in a in this graphic novel, that's Rorschach. There, yeah. this is like l- the the libertarians, libertarian beyond belief. Yeah, that's right. I mean, just just crazy,
1: <laughs> bitter, a bit messed up, oh. a little deranged, but also very very um, extremely smart and hard, you know, hard edged.
0: Exactly, uh, the ultimate in self accountability, mm-hmm. which which is a double edged sword for him you know dealing with all of his neuroses and all but at the same time you know wanting to create clarity in a very gray world
1: yeah he's a compromised character who accepts no compromises fair
0: enough (laughs) (laughs) uh folks if i could drop a mic i would right now
1: (laughs) yeah (laughs) yes so and and oddly enough i'll say also he's a character that almost feels like he doesn't fit in the story but in the same way that the pirate comics and other things don't feel like they fit into the story until they do
0: True. (laughs) True. And actually, you bring up a great point. Both Rorschach and the pirate comics almost act as if from a Greek tragedy play, The Chorus. Right. They're beautiful echoes of not only what you may be thinking of as a reader, but what the environment around these central characters might be saying about the current situation or the state of play in that particular event, that area of the city. They also,
1: they also work to draw in different genres. Now, the, the pirate yes. comics literally draw in a different genre. For sure. But Rorschach brings in the noir detective, as you said. The absolutely. Gumshoe, right? Yes. Just as, so let's move to another character. Dr. Manhattan brings in wow. that kind of science, science fiction, um, science gone wrong kind of character.
0: A- absolutely, genre. he does. He is the epitome, again, of a reoccurring mechanism in comics. And that is either the experiment or scientist working in the lab gets affected by his or her set of circumstances and is transformed then into that new superhero right right
1: actually we should talk as we go we should kind of define their powers a little bit too sure so, so the comedian doesn't seem to have any powers other than he's just like a he's like a nick fury kind of character right? yes
0: he brute force yeah. well-trained paramilitary kind of right.
1: guy um, yeah. rorschach is a uh very ghost like or stealthy character. His main thing is that he has a, a white bag that sits over his head that has ever morphing black designs on it, just like a Rorschach test. Yes. So he's a little bit of a mirror of society in that respect. True. That That villains see in his face what, you know, like just like a, a patient might see in a Rorschach test, echoes of their own crimes or things like that. He
0: is for sure a man of the street. Right. Very clever, cunning. His. Oh my gosh! And we'll get into this. Yeah, we'll get into into the chapter. And uh, Doctor
1: Manhattan's power is to basically control um, things at a molecular level, so he can he can move through time. He He can space time matter. Yeah, he could phase in and out. He's essentially the textbook on quantum mechanics. Plus plus twelve.
0: Yes, 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 yes. Okay. You have the owl. The owl and, and the owl is, for lack of a better term, your arrow or Batman type of character. Wealthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because of that, the wealth has then allowed the owl to go ahead and buy technology. Mm-hmm. He's got that you know, souped up little uh, ship that he goes flying around in, which helps out for intervening in certain events and crises uh, during the story.
1: Right. His, his power, as it were, is just a bag of tricks and, and the resources, always having yes. the right resources. As a character, um, you know, we find that he is an echo of an older generation of superheroes. There was an original Night Owl. He's the second Night Owl. Yep. Um, and he has interactions with this older gentleman who's the who's still alive, who's his uh, predecessor.
0: Yes. Hollis um, Mason,
1: I believe is his name. Yeah. yeah. The new Night Owl is um, an interesting character in that he is, he's a, I don't I want to
0: say, he's a, is he a moral
1: compass for the story?
0: You know, I think he's a grounding he he is definitely the yin to Rorschach's yang. Yeah. Because for every ounce of Rorschach wanting to set things straight mm-hmm. and and get revenge for certain things that he feels are unjust, Dan is the one saying, "Well, Rorschach, Your methodology with which you're going about doing that isn't necessarily societally correct.
1: Right. Right. Dan, the night owl, is is, um, the normal Joe. He's yes. the normal guy. He's the guy we can all empathize with. He's a little bit overweight. Right. He's uh, not very self confident. Yeah. He has flaws. He, he's got bad vision without his glasses. You right. Know what I mean? like he's just a normal guy. Yes. Um. So he's he's a great character. And then he has a love interest in this, who is Lori, and right. she is also an echo of an older generation of superhero. Yes. Um, her mother was the Silk Spectre.
0: Yes. Who the original. Um,
1: and they make a lot of kind of funny references to this, but she was a bit of a pinup girl mm-hmm. as as a superhero. Superhero. She wears a very flimsy costume. Yep. Um, and Laurie is much more of a modern woman, but also a little con- conflicted in her because she begins the story as the wife of Doctor Manhattan. Right. Um, but sh- but they're estranged because Doctor Manhattan is becoming less and less human. Yes. And so Laurie is kind of almost a little rebellious throughout the whole thing. She's kind of not very accepting of her role as a superhero.
0: No, and she really resents being second fiddle to Manhattan's obsessions as he continues to devolve from humanity yeah. and become more of a product of the wider universe as a whole. That's a good phrase,
1: second fiddle, because she also plays a little bit second fiddle to her mom, who was a more gregarious, more outgoing, you know, sort of character and who still kind of towers over her life.
0: Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. uh matter of fact some might say she was the stereotypical you know dragon mom, if you will, mm-hmm. trying to guide Lori's path through life and even mm-hmm. her career choices and what she would end up ultimately becoming.
1: And, and Moore does a great job of doing a mother-daughter relationship there. Yes. I mean, it's they both love each other, but there's also these, they annoy the crap out of each oh. other. and It's just, it's so good. It so is. who else do we have left? Well, we have Oz, Ozymandias. Yes, we do. <laughs> <laughs> Mandius is a, almost a caricature, not a character, a caricature of superheroes He's, the, he's super rich. Right. He's super handsome. Yes. Um. He's super powerful. What's what's his power, actually?
0: You know, that's a very good question. We know
1: he's an extremely good ath- athletic person. Yeah, very
0: good athletic person. He's bought a lot of tech, I'll tell you that much. I mean, he's got
1: tons of money.
0: Yeah, he, he does. Because he's built very successful businesses. Yeah. So, you know, not only did he have the, the energy and then being able to build that Arctic uh, facility, but then, you know, everything from... Taking a look at toys uh-huh. uh, from these supers, right? Right. Also, he's
1: the, he's the one who has made it. He, he has, has
0: monetized his existence. He has life. sold out, yes. um,
1: and he owns a bit of everything. And you'll see that throughout the comic, every little bit of well, not every little bit, but almost every little bit of commercial commercialism that you see in the story has his brand on it.
0: Oh, um, yes. Right? So, yes. So
1: the thing I noticed was that <laughs> his uh, uh, at one point, Dan has a new lock installed in his apartment because right. Rorschach breaks in and says your locks are uh, crap. Uh, you should have new security put in. And the the on the back of the overall of the guy who's putting in the lock, it says something like uh, Ozymandias Locks Incorporated or something like that. Right. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. And I'd never noticed that before. Um, and he has so he's he's everywhere in the background of the story. Now, I say yeah, he's a he successful the one. Ozymandias is a bazillionaire. Right. In control of his own future has kind of sold out in merchandise. We say he's successful that way. Dr. Manhattan is successful in the sense that he has basically become a government. hmm I want to say agent but it's almost like just a government resource he's he's kind of sold out in that respect and transformed into this new era by associating himself with the government.
0: He's a national asset.
1: Yeah, he's a national asset.
0: He um, is the and- one literally maintaining the balance of, of two very huge nuclear powers because in in this book right. you have the United States, global superpower, nuclear power and you still have the Soviet Union, Russia, right. also full up nuclear power. This is very much a Cold War anchored book and then the the oddity of what is this now? President Nixon's fourth term in office by this point.
1: Yeah, this is, this is what I wanted to get to because Woo! because those two are uh, have transformed themselves into this. We're dealing with an alternate history yes. where Nixon is still president and the Cold War has, is still going on. And um, those two have become part of that world. Whereas everybody else, Laurie, Dan, Rorschach, they are not really part of that world.
0: No. As uh, matter a matter of fact, they're kind of shunned. Matter of fact, superheroes as a whole right. are kind of shunned. They kind of had their day, That's if you right. will, and they've been sunsetted, and they're they're yeah. working on the fringes of society.
1: So, so, so yes, yeah. so part of this new world is that at some point the superheroes went through like a government registration and suppression sort of process. Yep. And um, now the comedian is interesting because he's a little bit of a betweener.
0: Yes, he is. Whereas
1: Rorschach and uh, Night Owl and Laurie are all kind of have basically retired or been retired Rorschach hasn't retired but he's just flying under the radar yeah Um, the comedian was still working for the government too or or had worked for the government in the past as a government agent very active in foreign countries and done some very Uh politically uh, questionable things
0: he's very much an ends justifying the means Machiavellian kind of guy so if there was a dirty project that the government wanted him to go and handle he was the guy to go do it
1: and I think where his comedian this isn't a superpower per se but it's it relates to his psychology and part of what makes him capable in that arena is he's amoral he looks at the universe as absurd as as comic in that sense and um he is has made peace with doing very ugly things just because that's the way it is right Right. he doesn't his his conscious does not bother him
0: yeah yeah right that's true. Yeah. Very, so I, true.
1: I, there is a dark side to comedy there that I oh. that I always see comedy and absurdity as you know related and in a dark way and I think that's where the comedian that that's I mean in some ways that is a superpower because most huh. of us have a conscience and we and we can't just go around doing things without right. um, having severe psychological breakdowns yeah right um, and the comedian can
0: yeah and he's very good at compartmentalizing right every aspect of his life
1: yeah. Okay, so we've got the characters. We've talked a little bit about the world that starts this thing off. Yep. Where do we go from here? Man. How much of the story? Should we not talk too much about the story? I, I
0: really don't think we should tell too much of the story because we really do not want to spoil this for readers. Yeah, uh, I think we should go. You know, top of the waves here.
1: Let's say this. I, we're just going to to give people an idea of what they're getting themselves into. Yeah, it begins with the murder of a superhero, and it expands into this idea that somebody is murdering superheroes. Right. Okay. And so that's really the the core. Backbone, storyline, mystery, what have you. That's where
0: Rorschach picks up his uh, speed, leads you through as a reader to say, hey, look, there's contract killer on the loose. Right. Who is going out and exterminating superheroes, basically tying, quote unquote, tying up loose ends. Yeah. And uh, so then basically what you've got left is Manhattan, who's a national asset. Yeah. And... Everybody else who's trying to survive on the fringe,
1: and I'm comfortable leaving any kind of story summary right there.
0: Yeah, I'm with you too. Yeah, I, absolutely. Okay. So let's let's delve into some specifics as far as impressions of. Let's talk about Dave Gibbons' art mm. in this.
1: So. Masterpiece would not be too light of a word no. for this. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> it's very interesting. One of the first things you'll notice is that almost every page is divided up into a nine-panel grid yeah. of equal panels. Right. Now, those get played around with some, and uh, increasingly so as you move through the novel, I think. But it's a very rigid kind of structure that is almost harkens back to golden age, very early comics.
0: Yes, and specifically what I loved was his bridging of the flashback work within Mm -hmm. the novel – and then tying in those nuances to the modern day representation within mm-hmm. those superheroes. That right. was excellently done. So watch for watch for
1: transitions where these very heavy, like white space borders between frames starts to fall away. Yes. And and you when you see that, that's there's a subtle thing happening there. Right. You, they're done at very intentional moments. Yes. Now one thing that does that kind of nine frame panel does give him the power to do is almost like a serial-like or stop-motion animated type motions where you'll zoom in or you'll see a motion from point A to point B done right. in serial fashion. Yes. And I really like that he did. He plays with that a lot.
0: Oh, I, I absolutely do too because it breaks up. And by the way, this is a very long book. Yeah, it is. It breaks up reader fatigue by doing mm-hmm. that, number one. It's highly effective to express a sense of urgency right. with respect to the moment that you're in. I also like, and you hearken to this quite often, when you're doing any flashback instances, that can be very effective along with the muted color palette or no color whatsoever. Some of the black and white work was just perfect uh, for portraying memories and, and events that had happened in the past. And uh, it, yeah, it, highly effective use of that.
1: Yeah, it actually allowed the smaller frames also um, mean you can't do big grandiose panels very often. And so a lot of the story is told through close-ups and focuses on small details. Intimacy. Which is great. Yeah, it's very intimate feel. Uh, <laughs> and you brought up the color. So let's talk about the color yeah. for a minute. When you go through this book, you can flip through it. And I kind of defy you to find pure color anywhere, meaning you'll very seldom find a straight green or a straight blue or a straight red. There have shift, The color is shifted throughout. He uses the full color palette. Sometimes he goes more chromatic, monochromatic. For instance, the, the episode where Dr. Manhattan and Laurie are on Mars, Right. you have a lot of pinks and reds and oranges and all that, of course. So he will use color in a more limited way sometimes. But throughout the book, you've got all the colors, but you also have none of the quote-unquote quote like predictable colors true and it's very cool I
0: mean, it's and, and, and really very well effectively jarring because they aren't the predictable colors when you are then immersed into the particular scene what caught me in particular when we're looking at those pyro comics that we referred to mm-hmm. earlier though that color palette was unique there mm-hmm. you did not see bleed over of that color palette to the rest of this world yeah it truly was of itself to further its complement to the overall story.
1: Absolutely. Um, So I I would think about it this way, and this is probably, certainly this happens in many intellectual properties, but for me, the first time I became aware of it was Star Wars, where characters have their own themes. You know, so Darth Vader has the Imperial March, that kind of thing. Each character in The Watchmen has a little bit of a theme, either color palette or commercialism details or whatever. So you watch these things, you watch these little details build up, and it tells you... speaks to it's all very subtle i I say you watch them but honestly they're mostly just happening to you true this work is so complex and so i I don't even know how much sometimes artists do things intuitively how much of this they planned how much of it they just did but But it's just i mean it's a symphony
0: i yeah i was blown away by gibbons's level of detail just portraying the grittiness Mm -hmm. Of the city, all the The trash on the floor. I mean, and and even the detail that he went into into the trash just to make that so real. And and folks, we're not talking about digital artwork here, right that's right where you can nitpick and cut and paste this is all hand spun and
1: none of it is greebling no. none of it is meaningless detail no it's, you can look at every little bit and there find are breadcrumbs
0: stuck everywhere. in the trash
1: <laughs> yeah, everywhere every bit of graffiti usually has something to yes say. It, it's amazing it it's is so, so you truly
0: feel like you are in this this weave the, the, this this interconnected universe, and it's all going somewhere, both visually and story-wise, yeah.
1: too. We're starting to drool and slobber. Yeah, I know you're right. I mean, it's right. it's um, it is amazing. Let's just say it's amazing. Sure. And, I, and just I I don't think. I don't even think there's any point in going much deeper on that. There's just, just no. there's plenty to discover here. You don't, you aren't going to get it all on your first read. You know, it just makes the work better and better and better as you see, like, oh my gosh, he planted this early, um, you know, after, and it's, it's really gets better each time you read it because you know what's coming. And then you see one of these little details, you're like, oh, that, you know, uh, little things like, I'll give you an example. Smiley face is an example. The sugar cubes. Right. Uh, And the very first time Rorschach visits Night Owl's house, Dan's house, he steals sugar cubes. Yes. And that comes back into play. Then, like, Lori comes over and he wants to give her two sugar cubes for her coffee, but there's only one left. You know, Rorschach will pull them out of his pocket. Yeah. They they come into, like, just a little subtle. They they really aren't related to the story, except that they're this little thread of continuity that binders. Yeah, that is not forgotten. There are no Chekhov's cannons. Everything pulled onto the stage matters. It's amazing. Yeah, I'm, I'm just going to drop it right there. I just right, that's that's all I've got to say about the story. And the,
0: yeah. So along those lines, who would we recommend Watchmen to? Okay, ha- what? Who does this appeal to? Right. Well.
1: I guess it should be said that there's some adult themes in this one. For sure. There's a little bit of of, uh, graphic nudity and a little bit of sex. Nothing heavy. And in some ways, it's done in such a mature manner that I wouldn't mind exposing youngish kids to it. Right. Just because I think it's a realistic portrayal of... You know, sex, it's not some sort of idealized. uh, No. Okay. And there's a great scene in that, by the way, I got it. I got to reference this, (laughs) which is, you know, I said, Dan is not very self-confident and he and Lori are making out on the couch and Dan is fumbling around and he's just having a hard time getting there with this beautiful younger woman. And then Ozymandias is on the television behind them performing acrobatic feats in front of thousands flawlessly. Yes. (laughs) And you just get this, you get this contrast between Dan and Ozymandias. That's, uh, you know, right. But, But, um, so having said that, I think, I probably would put the age limit around 12 or 14 before I would give this to somebody. Teens, First yeah. of all, it's very complex and deep and then True. they just not appreciate it. So I, I think, you know, a precocious 14-year-old to be fine or 12-year-old to be fine. Otherwise, I think this is more of a 18-21 plus kind of graphic novel. It's very sophisticated. Most definitely sophisticated. And I think it's for people who are well, it kind of brought me back a little bit into the kind of... It, it makes superhero meaningful. It makes superhero real and gritty. It makes... You know, it's it's Humanizes not, it. Yeah, it humanizes it. It's not Superman throwing cars... Nope. ...and saving Lois Lane. It's it's a very, you know, hard look at what it means to be a superhero in a world...
0: In a real world. You know, I'll, I'll put it this way. It, it takes what Stan Lee suggested... Through, let's say, Spider-Man, this normal kid who has real problems. Right. Okay. And just cranks this thing in the immortal words of Spinal Tap up to 11. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it truly grounds every one of these characters in their problems, in the case of Rorschach, in his own neuroses, and just hammers home how... Those problems and challenges motivate every one of those characters throughout right. this story.
1: I'm trying to think who would be a turnoff for, and I—if um,
0: you're not into antiheroes, right? let's say if you truly like your heroic superhero comics to be good guy. Beats bad guy yeah. always, and they go riding off into the sunset. No, yeah. this just, this thing is just not want for some you.
1: Fantastic Nazi punching. This isn't the one for you. Not at all. Um, I will say that politically, I felt like it was balanced. Like it, it didn't quite. It's not like if you're uh, on one end of the political political spectrum or the other, you're going to get turned off by the comic. Not at all. I suppose it probably speaks a little more to us as kids of the Cold War, like who yes. uh, experienced the Cold War. I'm not sure how much of that would come through to a younger reader.
0: No, I I agree with you there. I will say that I think through Moore's storytelling, you are rewarded for taking chances in society and not being a statist or a status quo person. Right. The only folks who do advance, whether it be for good or for bad, within this world are those who actually buck the status quo. Osmandius plays to it, but as we find out later in the book, he actually was working. Yeah, in the underbelly. Yeah, yeah. So right, again, no, I agree. Not people to spoil who, it, but
1: people who take their own who. Embrace themselves. Yes. To become who they're supposed to be, um, take initiative. Those people are rewarded in the story. So there is kind of a, that, that's a little bit of a moralistic underpinning to this, you know. Right. But it's not heavy. I no. don't think anything. In no, this, nothing's heavy handed. Nothing's heavy. It's all subtle. It's all a tool, tour de force. It's all. I don't know. It's a lovely
0: gray novel in that respect.
1: Every time I start using superlatives, I realize I'm spinning out. No, I I hear you. We'll have to rein it back in. True, true. Um, So that's an audience. Yep. Mm, What else we want to talk about here? Go
0: ahead and hop on the inspiration train for a second. All aboard! Inspiration train! So now that we've arrived on the inspiration train, and we're looking at story. And RPG play. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, this just you know shouts neutral. If you wanted to create a balanced view of life, okay. this is an amazing book yeah. to embrace and pluck a lot of these moral quandaries out of mm-hmm. and throw them into. Your gameplay experiences—it's
1: it, a gray world where no morality is is uncomplicated. It's all complicated, right? Right. So you you don't have uh, it's not paladins versus um, nasty orcs or whatever. No. You know, it's it's uh, yeah, it's it's very gray. So that's a cool that's a cool thing to take with you, I think, which is to complicate your good and bad alignments, your your True. bad forces with something a little more than just black and white paint. And you if
0: know? you wanted example of subplots. Or multiple themes working in parallel or harmoniously. Right. This is a phenomenal example to base subplot building. Right. off of
1: actually that's a uh, that's a great point because one of the things I carry away from this is the idea of motifs and I mentioned like the you know each character having their own theme and that sort of thing there was a there was a book made fairly recently called I'm going to forget the name of it it's a dungeon world supplement Perilous Wilds Perilous Wilds there we what go it is. and one of their they have a dungeon building generator in that and one of their elements is to roll a you roll randomly a motif and then it gets a number of times that it has to reoccur before it gets used up and so it's a great way way to think. So like, let's say your, your environment has a spider theme to it. Sure. So you put in, you know, some webs or a a statue that looks like a spider or characters with four arms or something like that. And you you get, you know, so I like this idea of if there's an idea that you want to get across, if there's a feeling you want or a tone or uh, some kind of moral axiom that you want to get across that you decide what are the emblems of that? What are the icons of that that I could use and employ those periodically throughout the story to get that to get that feeling through, yes, and that's, and that's definitely what they're doing in Watchmen. Like the idea of the co- the, the smiley face going through, the idea of clocks and time going through, the newsstand as a crossroads, Oh. right? And just the phrase like "Who watches the Watchmen?" That's a you know a phrase, right? That's like so, there are these little motifs that come through that I I think that's a great idea. Yeah, you know, just almost make a little check boxes for yourself. Like I, I want um, the world to feel Lovecraftian in squamous. and so I'm going to put in like you know ooey gooey like tentacles or whatever you know uh, and you put yourself give yourself six check boxes and make sure that you every so often work one of those into the scene
0: and uh, uh, and also another effective thing that Moore did was at the end of every chapter was it at the beginning he would have a quote mm-hmm. and sometimes that sometimes that quote that thematic quote that would summarize that chapter would be a set of song lyrics mm-hmm. other times it would be a direct quote I think one of them was actually biblical
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: And what was nice about that is that that provided yet another point of connection for the reader to go, oh, here's where there was some inspiration that was glossed by Moore that then he went ahead and applied directly yeah. into the novel. It's
1: almost like a summary without being a summary. It's like an end cap that says, this is what I, what I established, but it's not ham-handed by saying oh by the way here are the things that got established in this it's a quote that, that punches that home
0: it's a quote with a wink
1: yeah yeah and and you, and it was interesting that you said you weren't sure if they ended or beginning I'm not sure either I'd have to look back yeah but I think that's because they very often kind of bridged and in, in, they made a nice transition from one thing to the next very so true so they had echoes in both the thing that came before and the thing that will come after very very true yeah yep. there's all kinds of stuff in here for people that want to build a politically complex you know story there are things in here for talking about uh, incultured versus anti-culture heroes. There's just all kinds of things in here to carry away. Oh yeah.
0: Uh, Order versus anarchy. Uh, right. those who have been pushed to the fringes of society because quote unquote do not adhere to whatever the accepted standards of society are at that particular uh, time
1: the generation gap was a cool thing like the older yes. older superheroes <laughs> and new superheroes that in a fantasy adventure game that'd be a great thing to do to have, oh like, yes you know maybe they check in with the adventurers retirement home to see like you know <laughs> what the what the last you know, kothar the barbarian number one right did, right did, or whatever yeah <laughs> i mean that would be kind of a cool thing to work that would into
0: be a story that would be true true well again i think there's just a treasure trove of inspiration that can be glossed off of this particular graphic novel and we would highly encourage everyone to please go out pick it up give it a read and share with us your thoughts on watchmen whether it be via the anchor app send us an email at kirbyskids at gmail.com. It could be an mp3 file. It could just be an email. We would really love to hear your thoughts and how this particular graphic novel inspired you. Mm. So coming up next month, we'll be finally providing our detailed review of Swamp Thing. Yeah. And again, yes, we're doing a double shot of more here, but you can't get enough of more. So we're having more of more. (laughs) And uh, really going back to where he made his splash in the States with taking this character that Ween had developed and truly putting it on a whole other level.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I'm going to preface it a little bit by saying it's a very hard character to work with. Oh. Um, if you've ever if you're a fan of monster movies like I am I mean, I grew up on Godzilla movies and things like that you realize that writing an intelligent plot or a gripping story around a monster is quite difficult it is because they're not they don't and naturally connect with human storylines and such. And so, what he does with Swamp Thing, I think, is going to be a real eye opener for both of us. The artwork is great. The oh. story seems to be great. We're only by I'm only by halfway through it. Um, uh, this me is my too. first time experiencing it, but I can't wait to to talk about it.
0: Uh, agreed. It should be fun. All right. So, join us next time.